Alright, it's Bold and Uncut. It's Brandon here. And, uh, yeah, I've got um, my Rise Mushroom Coffee this morning. I've got my new cup from um, Cultish, the Cultish Podcast, part of uh, Apologia Ministries. Jeff Durbin and James White's on there a lot. Um, but this is kind of like a separate series that's a part of that, and they do they deal a lot with uh, basically the cults. So and I enjoy listening to them. They have guests and stuff, talk about... Uh, you know, Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, the new New Age stuff. Um, so it's interesting. Um, I got, but I got uh, a cup from them or a coffee mug, and it's got a um, a skull with a book in it that says cultish, and it says bad theology hurts people. So there you go. I um, recently went up the Blue Ridge Parkway. I'm a motorcycle. I took a Wednesday off, so it'd be during the week, uh, so it wouldn't be as crowded as the weekend, you know, just to see some of the fall uh, foliage, and I went with my buddy, um, and on his motorcycle, him and his wife, and uh, I was not ready for how cold it was going to be on top of the mountain. It was pretty cold, but once the, you know, evening got there, or uh, not evening, but afternoon, after about 12, it, it warmed up a little bit, but and my left uh, hand grip stopped working. The uh, I have heated grips, and the left one stopped working. So that wasn't fun. But um, it, it was kind of working, but it wasn't as strong as it usually is. But, um, yeah, when we got to the top of the, of all places, when we got to the top of the, the parkway, the highest point on the parkway, I forget what that's called, but it's like 6,000-something above sea level, I think. But... Um, it's funny, uh, out of all, you know, you, you don't expect it there, but there was two women there standing out in the cold, wrapped up, and uh, <clears throat> they were, you know, they had their poster and they had their stuff, and I was like, that's Jehovah's Witnesses, look at that. And they are, they're dedicated to that. Um, you see that more than anyone else, really, but, so I went, I went up to them, and I wasn't ready for it, but... Um, I, I listened to them and I, I took their stuff and we kind of talked a little bit, asked them where they're from. They're super sweet. And I remembered Hebrews 1. I couldn't remember where to take them back from there. Um, but I did tell them, because they, they used the King James Version too, I did tell them to read through Hebrews 1. And then I, uh, I talked about the uh, monogeneus of... Uh, John three sixteen one and only not really a begotten because you know they they will say use similar language like yeah we believe he's the son of God but they mean that differently than how we would with the Trinity and uh, but yeah I I want to I felt a little bad because I want to be able to have that memorized I think I will from now on uh, it, it, you know specifically with this right here and it, and we are referring to Hebrews one. But I, I just didn't, uh, I wasn't ready for it, so I didn't have it in it. I was, I was cold, too. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was just super quick. I wasn't sitting there debating them. But it was, you know, kind of like polemics. This could be under polemics, but do it in a loving way. But, I, you know, I listened to them, and then I just challenged them to read Hebrews 1 and the King James. And, and I pray that, you know, the Spirit will work through them and show them that I can't really do anything for them anyway. But... Not really debating, just, you know, I listened to them, so I told them just to hear me out. And, um, But yeah, if you if you will, if they come to your door or anything, and, and they use a translation called the New World Translation, and, and uh, you know, it's like the Watchtower Society or whatever, I don't know, um, but but they, uh, it has a lot of changes. Like, I think Colossians has, uh, that Jesus created all other things. It adds the word other there, which is not in the Greek, and it's not in any other English translation. And they change Lord to Jehovah pretty much all over the New Testament. They're big about the word Jehovah. So that's what's fun about using this part. Um, is you'll tell them, can I see your, uh, or just let them turn to it and read it to you maybe, uh, the New World Translation say turn to psalms 102 and then read verse 1 to start with it says oh jehovah okay so you say okay so this is jehovah this is referencing the psalmist is referring to jehovah here 
O Jehovah, hear my prayer. Let me cry for help. Uh, let me cry for help reach you. I think I put that right. <laughs> that doesn't sound right. Let me make sure. Go to the actual. Yeah, let me cry for help reach you. I don't know why it says it like that. But, oh well, it says, O Jehovah, hear my prayer. Okay, so. Uh, that's And this is in their watchtower, Okay. So, right off the bat, we're, the psalmist is referring to Jehovah. Okay, so then later on, you don't have to read the whole thing because it's pretty pretty good little ways down towards the bottom. But Psalm 102, still in 102, you go to verses 25 through 26 in their New World Translation. It says, Long ago you, still referring to Jehovah, laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain, just like a garment they will all wear out. Just like clothing, you will replace them, and they will pass away. Okay, so you got that, Psalm 102. And then when you turn to Hebrews chapter 1, still in their New World Translation, you'll see Hebrews 1, verse 8 says, But about the Son, He, and you know you can read in context, make sure uh, I'm not throwing anything off, but it says, But about the Son, He, and this is God the Father talking, he, God the Father, says to the Son, referring to the Son, God is your throne forever and ever. Okay? God is your throne forever and ever. And then you uh, skip verse 9, go to verse 10. It says, uh, Hebrews 1, verse 10, uh, says, At the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. And just like a garment, they will all wear out. And you will wrap them up just as a cloak, as a garment, and they will be changed. And they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will never come to an end. That is quoting, um, and it's referring back to Psalm 102. And Hebrews quotes 102 and uh, Psalm 102 and attributes those uh, things that Jehovah did to God the Son there. So... So even a corrupted translation can't hide the triune God completely. Uh, you know, those, those pretty much word for word. You know, I mean, it's it's a, worded a little different, but it uses the same, you know, cloak, garment. Uh, you're the same year after year, all that as 102. And in their translation, okay, so those things are regarded to Jehovah. And then God the Father refers those same things to the Son here in Hebrews 1. So I just think that's a fun little... Um, thing remember psalm 102 and hebrews 1 okay you can go back and look at those things for yourself and, and you don't have to buy a watchtower book to look that up you can find that online they're they're on their website so you can use theirs psalm 102 and read through their translation there and um but yeah jehovah's a big thing for them so the fact that those attributes are attached to jehovah in psalm 102 and then god the father attributes those to the son in hebrews 1 uh, I think is enough to prove the triune God there and that Jesus is God. All right. Um, we're going to jump right in it because i got a lot here. Uh, I did a podcast yesterday morning with my friend uh, Michael Schultz. So if you if you haven't checked that out, check that one out first. And uh, we're going to be doing like Baptist history today. And we did that yesterday and he, he kind of walked us through a lot of stuff to really make sense of kind of more makes sense of what I'm going to be referring to today, but a lot of it's going to be kind of uh, overview as well, but, but you know, while, while I am proud to be Baptist, you know, I like our history. I think it's, uh, we've got, we've got cool history, you know, and we're, I've uh, got some cool names out there. Um, Benjamin Keach and uh, Nehemiah Cox, Charles Spurgeon, John Gill, you know, we've, we've got some cool history but we shouldn't be inappropriately proud with any sort of denominational idolatry, you know, um, as far as, it, and especially like identifying as Baptist, you know, I, I guess I could identify, I'm a, I, I am Baptist, but I'm ultimately a Christ follower. Um, but I, I think the Baptist denomination stays closer to scripture. Therefore I, I go to a Baptist church, but my convictions are Baptist, but I'm ultimately a Christ follower. Um, 
landmark theology or heritage theology, they call it, is the belief among some independent Baptist churches that only local and independent Baptist congregations can truly be called churches in the New Testament sense. But they say that they trace their history back to John the Baptist. And even through, even though the church started at Pentecost, but they, they say we, we go all the way back to John the Baptist. He was a Baptist. <laughs> and these landmark Baptists believe that all other groups and even most other Baptist groups are not true churches because they deviate from the essentials of landmarkism. Other churches do not have true baptisms, especially the, the Pado-Baptists, obviously, they would think. <coughs> so that is not what we are. I'm, I'm pretty much specifically focusing on the SBC, Southern Baptist Convention, because that is what my church is a part of. So you got others like Primitive, Independent, Free Will, and that's not going to be so much as what we're referring to today. Southern Baptists did not arise out of the Anabaptist movement of the 16th century Switzerland. Okay, now there is a story of a man named Richard Blunt, and I've read articles and, and, uh, and listened to some podcasts where they refer back to him in the 1640s-ish, that they were still, that you know, at the early on, the Baptists were more concerned with the timing of your baptism, as far as believer's baptism, than the mode of baptism. But I think they started getting conviction that, the Bible refers to immersion with the baptism. So one of the, Richard Blunt could speak Dutch, so they sent him up to the Anabaptists to kind of learn about that. And then he, I think he actually got baptized there and came back. And then from then on, uh, immersion was the, the ultimate uh, way that we would bapt, you know, do believer's baptism. Uh, 1644 is our first kind of confession there. Um but yeah, the Anabaptist, Brian C. Brewer, in his article, he writes, those misunderstood, or his article is called Those Misunderstood Anabaptists, he writes, and while baptism appeared to be their most distinctive practice, what was arguably more significant to the Anabaptists was the project that the rite served, the restoration, and not merely reformation of the visible church to its biblical simplicity and pure practice removed from all the perceived layers of tradition, distortion, and corruption. So that's the big thing there, restoration. Um, Jeff Durbin and his, uh, you know, he, he, in one of his podcasts, he, he talks about the restoration of the church is impossible according to scripture. He says, you know, we see verses like the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It is an everlasting kingdom. The faith that once was for all delivered to the saints once it started at a moment and it kept going. It never fails. So the restoration idea is kind of like there was no church for a while and we're restoring the true church. We're restoring the pure church, uh, it, it, the Roman Catholics took over and it was, and while obviously the Reformation was a part of, you know, seeing the corruption within the church, we never were saying, or they were never saying, uh, there was no church and we're starting, we're restoring the church. Um, but that is what kind of like Anabaptist movements were saying, as well as uh, later on with uh, Seventh-day Adventist uh, Mormons, you know, hence the Latter-day Saints, um, and, and you know, movements like that, Jehovah's Witness, they're restoring the true church, whereas we were reforming. And we can see re- Reformation all through, even in the New Testament. The letters to Paul to the churches were, er- were you know, where errors crept in, Galatians and Corinthians. So, you know, we have, as the church, we have an ob- objective standard, the Word of God. We see reform in the Old Testament with Josiah, right? Reading the Word of God to correct the people of God. We see that in Second Kings 23 through 25. Um so the Protestant movement Reformation. So kind of you kind of got to get a basis to see where these Baptists popped out of. You know, uh, you know, there's Proto-Protestants as they call them, uh, the Waldensians. I've I brought those up before. Those the, that group before. Um, uh, the idea of Peter Waldo kind of being their their guy of, of focus, but I don't know if, how connected he actually was to the Waldensians. But and there's actually a cool. Uh, museum I really want to go to here soon that's in North Carolina, kind of focusing in on the Waldensi people. It's kind of up in the, the Alps area where they were, and, and some awesome stories. Awesome stories I really want to focus in on, uh, and the persecution there, but 14th century, you got English theologian John Wycliffe. Uh, he was assassinated, um, or he assisted in the translation of the Latin Bible, um, you got the Bohemian Reformation, uh, you know, 1380 to 1436. John Hus, um, who challenged the morality of, of the, of, you know, they had ideas of indulgences at the time. And that was kind of his focus, I think, and the purgatory idea. But 
he enraged the papacy and uh, he was eventually burned. Um, William Tyndale translated the Latin Bible and uh, he was convinced that the Bible alone should determine the practices and doctrines of the church and that all believers should be able to read the Bible in their own language. Um, and then he was, in 1536, strangled and burned for that. Um, so you, you see these movements of kind of the same ideas, of you know, especially with, the, with Tyndale and Wycliffe, uh, as that's connected to the Reformation and the Protestants, uh, their idea of you know, why they're reforming. But the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century was a political, intellectual, cultural, and religious revolt against the Roman Catholic Church. And that was kind of the sole authority at the time for religious and uh, spiritual matters. But uh, scholars generally accept 1517 to 1648 as the formal beginning and end of the Reformation. So some of the main characters that I put together, and I mentioned this in the the podcast uh, yesterday with Michael, of my three figures that I think are important for Baptists to know. Obviously Martin Luther. You, you know, Martin Luther and then John Calvin, because the early Baptists had high Calvinistic uh theology and uh, convictions, um, and then Henry VIII, who was uh, the king who replaced the Pope as the head of the church uh, within England, so that's kind of where the Anglicanism came out of, which the Puritans came out of Anglicanism, which the Baptists came out of Puritans, okay, so you kind of got to know the, the basis of these. We have five solos that kind of show the Reformation and the ideas there, uh, and kind of distinguish the Reformers. You got uh, sola scriptura, scripture alone, solus Christus. I'm probably not saying these as, as cool as I'd like to. They're, these are Latin terms, uh, but solus Christus, which means Christ alone, solo fide, faith alone, solo gratia, grace alone, and the soli dio gloria. Definitely didn't say that one right, but glory to God alone. So these five solos are specific Latin slogans uh, that kind of come out of the Reformation era. Uh, and identify themselves as why they're pushing back against Rome. But sola scriptura means scripture alone. That was considered to be the formal cause of the Reformation, while solo fide, justification by faith alone, okay, and we know that term, was considered to be the material cause and reason for protest. And, you know, we kind of connect that really big with Luther, uh, you know, faith alone. Solo scriptura does not mean do not read the early church fathers. Okay. Do not read the Deuterocanonical books. Do not read Second Temple Jewish literature. Solo scriptura, scriptura does not mean that because when you read the Reformers, like even Calvin was running back to Augustine, a lot of people say that the Reformation, a lot of the historians say the Reformation was the doctrine of grace um, versus the doctrine of the church of Augustine. Doctrine of Grace of Augustine versus the Doctrine of the Church of Augustine. Obviously, the Doctrine of Grace was with the Protestants. Doctrine of the Church was with Augustine. Um, and, you know, even looking at Augustine, though, it, he seemed to have, in his writings, a much higher view of Scripture from the Confessions and everything. They said the Confessions can, and the Creeds can err, but there's something special and distinct about Scripture. And... Um, <clears throat> We felt as Protestants, or they felt as Protestants, that the Catholic Church had gotten away from that. Uh, you know, Luther, like me and Michael talked about, Luther wasn't wanting to start something new. He was wanting to reform. <clears throat> but yeah, it doesn't mean do, don't read deuterocanonical books. And mo most of the church fathers said, you know, they always, I felt like they, not all of them, but they, they put a distinction of the deuterocanonical and the canonical books. But they always said that the deuterocanonical were, was edifying for the church to read. Uh, so it's not saying don't read that stuff. Uh, in fact, you know, uh, Second Temple literature can give us a better understanding of how the Jews saw things, especially, I think, with the book of First Enoch uh, specifically. But And then also, obviously First Maccabees is really cool historically to, to understand that. Um, <clears throat> but it does mean, Sola Scriptura means that Scripture is the only sole infallible source of authority for Christian faith and practice. It doesn't mean that that the Bible is the only authority for the believers. The church has authority too, but we are fallible, whereas Scripture is infallible. Um, reformers used other authorities like reason and tradition. They developed arguments using logic and learned from the writings of past Christians, as I said, you know, using Augustine and others. And, and uh, the Bible was, the, but the Bible was the supreme authority that ruled reason and tradition because Scripture alone was the infallible, uh, was infallible precisely because it is God's word. The Protestant understanding of justification, okay? So the Reformation understanding of justification is 
that it is by grace through faith and by the imputation of Christ's righteousness. So that was the big word there, imputed. Whereas the Catholics have a word kind of infused. Okay, and we put he imputes his righteousness to you. Not that you become perfect, but that you are you you seem perfect to God. Like not I don't know if that wording helped. That you are perfect because of Christ's righteousness. God sees the Father sees Christ's righteousness on you. He imputes it to you, but not that you're perfect, because obviously we're all not we're not there yet. Um, you know, that comes into our you know, our sanctification. We will look different and ultimately we will be different in our glorification at the end and we'll, we'll get to theosis in the future. The idea of the early church and theosis and glorification as a lot of the Protestants say it. Deification, Christification, there's different wordings for it. But yeah, the imputed versus infused righteousness. And and we believe that justification is by grace through faith and by the imputation of Christ's righteousness. He lived and died the perfect life. We are considered righteous before God because of Christ, not that we become totally righteous in action, even though there will be an obvious change, right, because of the sanctification. Um, And we talk of, you know, James 2 refers to dead faith and versus true faith. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. The Church of England, uh, Henry VIII, uh, it's it's kind of a, once again, it gets political. Uh, He kind of breaks away from the Pope and the Roman Church because the Pope, Clement, he refused to grant him an annulment of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon so that he could wed Anne. So, kind of had to do with women um, and, and politics. So, But the Anglican Church grew out of this. And they would consider themselves Protestant. Um, and w- I mean, we do too. Um, the Puritans, so understanding the Puritans first requires a basic understanding of Protestantism and the history of Anglicanism within Christianity. 1517, Protestantism split off from the from Catholicism because of a number of the differences, obviously, in, 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 which was initially pointed out by Luther. He's kind of the key figure to start with, but there's plenty of figures around him. Um, in England, that Anglicanism was kind of the, the form of Protestantism there, and it quickly became the state religion. Okay, so then you start seeing kind of the same problems there, you know, running the state and stuff. Uh, and corruption there with the Anglicans, as you did with the Catholics before. But the Puritans developed as their own informal denomination because of the differences of belief between Puritans and Anglicans. Many Puritans sought to reform the Anglican Church to fit in with their own beliefs. Today, Puritanism is strongly associated with early colonial America. Now, we're in Halloween right now, okay? And I swear, every other movie and uh little series and they, they like pointing to the Puritans with the Salem witch trials and showing kind of the corruption there and they, they really make the Puritans out to be evil evil people on these uh, secular movies you know and you know what they did wasn't wasn't right but and you kind of see that same thing with the Anglicans were doing that and then you see the Puritans doing it kind of to the Baptists and and uh, in America where they you know they didn't like that, that idea of the credo baptisms Wingley didn't like the credo baptism of the Anabaptists, uh, or as far as, you know, dunking. Um, so you kind of see the same stuff over and over again, you know, and we Baptists have their own problems as well with the 1845 we'll get to with the slavery thing. So, you know, we're, we're not perfect. There is no perfect church, perfect as far as perfect denomination, uh, people group, but, uh, Puritans originated from the theological work of John Calvin. Okay. So that's important to remember. So much of the theology developed as a result of his writings, uh, Puritans, by and large, remained connected to the Anglican Church in England, and but so they were basically pushing for reform, at least in the 1500s. And when they saw that they were unsuccessful, they began to kind of leave England around 1620. Uh, so you get the, you know, we hear about the Pilgrims, and they were kind of a breakaway movement uh, within Puritanism. They were called separatists, so they were they were a little more radical uh, in their approach to the anti-Catholic stuff. Um, so they wanted to separate, basically. And a lot of the Puritans were con- considered non-separatists because they didn't necessarily want to separate, but they just wanted to reform. Um, Puritanism was ultimately about separating Anglin- Ang- Anglicanism from its Catholic influence, okay? And creating a more perfect and scriptural motivated form of Christianity. Um, 
So the, the General Baptists, let's talk about that. So we got two groups kind of in England. You got General and Calvin, or Calvinist, pure, uh, particular, okay? General and particular. Um, the general kind of leaned a little more towards, it, it, you can't say Armenian because this the movement was happening at the same time, but they kind of have the same convictions as that, whereas the particular, hence the word particular, <laughs> Um, were uh, leaned towards the Calvinistic of the of the Puritans, the, that kind of soteriology and and um, so the General Baptists weren't necessarily Armenian because that movement was happening at the same time. But that's kind of and they generally worked with with many of the Anabaptists because their salvation theology was close to the Anabaptists, the general. But the particular t- tended to network more with the Puritans because of their Calvinistic theology, but after the English Civil War, about after that time, the particular Baptist movement uh, pretty much took over. Uh, you start to see some heretical stuff in the general, and they kind of split it and all that. But um, but Southern Baptists today, let's let's kind of talk about Southern Baptists now. We're going to focus in what we know today as the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, it first flowed out of the Puritan non-separatist movement movement of. Of England, Puritans were non-separatists who, in 1630, joined the migration uh, to establish the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Non-separatists, which included the Puritans, believed that the Church of England could be purified through reform. And when you think of, uh, while well, some immigrants uh, who came to America, North America, they went to the New World as Baptists, but for the most part. Um, it was more typical for them to adopt Baptist views after they arrived in the colony. So they came over as more so Puritans. Um, and then once they got here, they had convictions otherwise, of, and they kind of moved into the Baptist camp. <coughs> um, Williams. Um, the first Baptist church in America. Okay, so Roger Williams is kind of a big name for that. Um uh, and, and the first Baptist church in America, and it was called the first Baptist church in America, I think. So he kind of got bragging rights there. Uh, it was in modern-day uh, Rhode Island, the state Rhode Island. It was called Established at Providence. He kind of had to leave the, the general Massachusetts Bay Area because they were strictly Puritan and, and you know, pedo baptism and all that. So he had to kind of leave for that. But And some even have questions if he was even a Baptist. But this is about 1638. Um, Williams left the church with no strong leadership, and it was reorganized on the General Baptist platform in 1652. But the early General Baptists never gained great strength. Most of their churches decayed, and some, including the Providence Church, were reorganized as particular Baptist churches. Okay, so remember, general, particular, particulars more of the Calvinistic convictions, and they, they kind of have more a bigger, <coughs> um, just kind of a bigger foundation and bigger um, establishment and stuff. Um, Definitely more history and more on them as well. But so let's look at some of our historical confessions now. So a confession is basically like a statement of faith, a system of what we believe, kind of a a little summary of what we believe. And you know, and like I said before, just as Augustine back in the fifth century said that creeds are fallible and can be corrected, but our only infallible authority and source is Scripture itself. So not only not our, our uh, only authority, but our only infallible authority. Scripture is solo scriptura. Back to that whole scheme of things but one of the one of the parts of the baptist confession their confessions is that scriptures the scriptures are sufficient for faith and practice so that's always kind of a part of of the confession you know the scriptures are sufficient um and while we've had different confessions over the years and and we change some things you know scriptures the reason we do it and scriptures still are sole authority infallible um you know, with the Baptist movement, it kind of begins. The General Baptists kind of arise first, but the first, um, the General Baptists do arise first. But in London, and we're talking in England area, um, but the particular, the Calvinistic Baptists adopt the first confession, and that's in 1644. Okay, a few decades later, Baptists in England sought to affirm their uh, solidarity with the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists on core doctrines of evangelical Christianity. Um, so they adopt the uh, Second London Confession of 1689, kind of to show their continuity with the Westminster Confession. So you see a lot of similarities. Obviously, it's different with the Baptist stuff and the kind of the church uh, 
ecclesial stuff and we, we see differences there but they wanted to show so the 1644 was like hey we're not anabaptists here's what we believe we're a little different um and then 1689 is like hey we're we're like y'all we, we have the same calvinistic convictions we just differ in these areas so you see a lot of similar language with with uh, some different stuff modifications a lot of people say of the westminster confession um the 1689 um, is similar in the language and structure of the of the Westminster. Um, the general and particular Baptist, I think the first general Baptist one was like 1860, or I don't know, I can't remember. I know the, the Westminster was probably 60s too, I can't remember, but um, so the general have some some different ones, and I think Michael talked a little bit about it as well, but and then there's a really good one, uh, 1691, I think it's called the Orthodox Creed, I don't know, that the general have, and a lot of it is referring back to Nicaea and the Apostles' Creed, and, you know, they're wanting to keep that continuity, which is which is awesome. So you see that a lot in their language as well, and a lot of that um, wanting to stay, demonstrate their desire to, to keep with the great tradition in Christology. So the general and particular Baptists early on wanted to demonstrate that, their continuity with the great tradition and Christology, and then the Trinity, and they're also their continuity with the Reformers, the other Reformers and their soteriology, especially the particular, with the, you know, the, the Calvinistic convictions. Obviously a little different than the, than the Lutherans, but as far as connecting with the uh, justification by faith alone, but obviously their other ideas were connected with the, with the, uh, the Puritans. In many of their writings, they are uh, con uh, continually quoting uh, from the early church as well as the early reformers to make their case on doctrinal matters. So this is like not necessarily the creeds and the confessions, but the the writings of say Nehemiah Cox and um, Benjamin Keach and you know so on. John Gill does it a lot. We'll talk about him in a little bit. Um, just some of him connecting to the Gregory of Nasi of Nyssa. Um, they do not separate or differ, you know, in these creeds with the orthodox system and creeds that were put together in the early church, okay? The London Confessions are even touching on deeper doctrines on issues such as divine simplicity, you know, which we've talked about before. God is not made up of parts. Uh, the filioque way, you know, the spirit comes from, um, comes out of the Father and the Son. So the, these ideas... Um, you know, kind of can... We're still with the, with the tradition of the church, you know? Um... The, 18, the 1689 Confession was adopted in slightly modified form by Baptists in America. And this is particularly in the Philadelphia Association. So this is 1742. This is kind of America's version of the 1689. They change a few things. Um, and then you got the New Hampshire Moderate Confession of 1833. And it was a Calvinistic statement of faith. It was a moderate uh, Calvinistic state. So that you see a little less, but it's still very Calvinistic. But just a little, you know, kind of, I guess, the aggressiveness taken off of it, as if that's a good wording. <laughs> um, and then me and Michael talked a lot about this, if you uh, want to go and listen to more of this. But the Baptist faith and message of 1925, the Southern Baptist's first statement of faith. So 1845, we, we become the Southern Baptist Convention, pretty much. We split because of issues such as slavery and missions. But the Baptist faith and message of 1925, this is the Southern Baptist's first statement of faith. It was adaption of the New Hampshire Confession. So the New Hampshire Confession, as I said, was already a little bit moderate in, the, in their Calvinistic uh, convictions and their statement of faith. So this does not include or reflect any of the early General Baptists or Anabaptist statement of, statements of faith. As I said, it was just kind of a focus more on the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, <clears throat> in both its founding fathers and its doctrinal commitments, the Southern Baptist Convention should be properly understood as having decidedly reformed roots. Okay? Reformed theology, Calvinistic. Uh, you know, and looking at the particular Baptists, I've, I've read that some were four-point Calvinists and others were five-point, but considering they're called particular and looking at the 1689 and some of those uh, confessions, they, you know, pretty much concluded with a fifth, with five-point Calvinism. Um, historical data from a Presbyterian, William Buell Sprague, Probably not saying that right, but he's a pastor, <clears throat> author, and theological biographer in the 19th century. So that he's a Presbyterian. He he doesn't have any. He probably does a little bit with his Calvinistic ideas as well, but he doesn't really have a, you know, a 
a foot in the race, if that's a, a term I can use, but because um, he's a Presbyterian, but he says in his lessons from Sprague's annuals of the American Baptist pulpit, we see of the hundreds of biographies on of Baptists in his annals, A-N-N-A-L-S, Sprague's, his, his, he says only uh, one is described as Armenian. So that's just kind of showing you, you know, he's going through all these Baptists and only one is, is, is described as Armenian. So, you know, the Calvinism was very heavy early on. The founders of the Southern Baptist uh, Convention were confessional Calvinists. Um, when the 293 delegates met in Georgia in May of 1845, they elected W.B. Johnson, this is 1782 to 1862, as the uh, denomination's first president. And like a majority of the Southern Baptist Convention's first delegates and early leaders, Johnson held to a reformed understanding of salvation. Another key leader early on, Henry Tucker, 1819-1889, who owned the Christian Index of Georgia in the late 1890s, he wrote, To be a Baptist in Georgia is to be a Calvinist. Um, so the doctrinal stance uh, was that that was that doctrinal stance was assumed among Baptists in the Deep South in the mid-19th century. Um, it was the clear con- confessional position of the Sandy Creek Association in North Carolina. The Southern Baptists' first seminary, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and it was founded in 1859 in Greenville, South Carolina. I think it's in Kentucky today, or it was moved to Kentucky later. But President James Boyce and founding uh, faculty, faculty members Basil Manry Jr. and John Roadus penned the school's Confession of Faith, the Abstract of Principles. And we're going to be reading through some of that. That's the um, kind of the book that Michael told me to get to kind of read through it to kind of understand a lot of, uh, of you know, just our, our doctrines as Baptists, um, from, you know, consistent from the... But it, it, it was taken from the 1689 Second London Confe- Confession and reflected its commitment to the doctrines of grace. So the abstract of principles. You can look that up and order that if you're interested. But a majority of Southern Baptists today do not embrace Calvinism, but for the first 75 years or so of the Southern Baptist Convention, the first 75 years of that, the Southern Baptist Convention was overwhelmingly committed to these doctrines. And, you know, it's interesting. A lot of the articles I've been reading today on where a lot of Southern Baptists kind of line up, uh, a lot of them apparently are closer to semi-Pelagian. Um, and, you know, we'd have to go back to the Council of Carthage where that Pelagianism was condemned. But, you know, that when you hear Augustine, you think a lot of things, but he had a the controversy with Pelagianism. Pelagianism at that time, so that's really where you could learn the most about it. But basically, in a nutshell, just to sum it up real simple, in the Bible, David said, "In sin did my mother conceive me." So this is the doctrine of original sin, which I've done with Augustine in the past in a past episode. If you're interested in that, kind of talked a little bit about Augustine's life and the the doctrine of original sin. But Pelagianism would deny that doctrine. Okay. Um, Basically, a lot of his doctrines was you can be good enough, and you are not born in sin. Martin Luther has a sermon, and uh, he he shows that there are two kinds of sin. So this isn't just within Calvinism. Um, He has a sermon where he shows that there are two kinds of sin, original sin and actual sin. So there are two, so too there are two kinds of righteousness, okay? The perfect righteousness we have in Christ, and then the life we live, often referred to as sanctification, Okay, the acts of our righteousness are an outgrowth of our passive righteousness. The perfect righteousness, righteousness of Christ that we receive is going to be manifested in how we live our life. We are totally righteous because of Christ, but we then work out that in our life with actual righteous deeds. Okay, so too with the original sin, and our actual sin is the working out of that original sin. You know, when you're either in Adam or in Christ, right? In Adam we, we die, and in Christ we live. Um, so babies are born sinless to Pelagians, and they give the idea that you can live a sinless life through Christ who gives you that ability. That's kind of the idea there. Kind of more of that infused instead of imputed. But And an offshoot of that, uh, I think it was kind of more so towards the, the Reformation time, was a term called semi-Pelagian, where you're not necessarily Pelagian, but you have some Pelagian ideas. Um they say that the fall had an impact on humanity, but the human will is not imputed enough to not be able to make a first step towards grace. 
So the human will can take a step towards grace. The beginning of faith is up to humans. The human will chooses to have faith. And this is apart from the inner working of the Spirit. Okay, So election and predestination. God knew before time which people would make a good use of their human will and choose to put their faith in Him. So this is kind of the semi-Pelagian idea. Um, Others would reject Him. The objects are not individuals, but rather the categories of saved and damned. Divine election applies to all human beings. Okay, and this is um, most of that was from Jordan Cooper, who is not a Calvinist. He's a Lutheran, um, and he even refers to Doctor Flowers, who's kind of the big what he he calls his his uh, doctrine uh, provisionism. Um, people sin, and then responsible uh, open door. Um, vicarious atonement, illuminating grace, and destroyed, and then eternal security is kind of where that provision, uh, provide, is what he he calls it. Um, And he's kind of the, I guess you could call it traditionalism, um, but it's a little more, it's a little different. Um, And and we'll even see it's different than our 2000 faith and message um, confession that, that, you know, Southern Baptist... uh, attach themselves to. Um, yeah, Jordan Cooper, not a Calvinist, like I said, he says, Flowers is saying he is not a semi-Pelagian because he says grace comes before conversion, but by that he does not mean grace that changes our will or our affections, but rather he means grace as the external preaching of the gospel. That's his grace that he's referring to. It comes before our faith, which is exactly what the semi-Pelagians taught, uh, Cooper says. So he doesn't mean grace internally drawing you to God and working in you. Okay. John 6 says, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So no one can come to the Son unless the Father draws him. That was Jesus talking there. So um, Other doctrines, I think. See, and I don't want to attach labels. I'm not smart enough for all that. But And I've listened to Flowers. I do like Flowers. Um, but you can find debates where he's debating James White and, and others. Um and, and actually, you know, we and we talked about this with on the podcast with Michael. Uh, in that confession, faith and message confession, two thousand, it talks about um, regeneration, pretty much preceding faith, and that's very Calvinistic. Um, you know, where Christ is is changing your will to follow Him. He's drawing you to Himself, and that kind of goes against what Flowers is saying. Uh, other doctrines I've noticed: eternal subordination. Um, you know, I've talked about this in the past. Uh, this goes against classical, classical Trinitarianism and that the Son learned obedience. So eternal subordination is basically that the Son was eternally submitted to the Father. We, we see that the Son learned obedience in Philippians 2. His will submitted to the Father's will. Uh, and this is, you know, his human in the human sense, but his divine will would be the same as the Father's because they are of the same essence. Okay, they can't have separate wills there. You know, it's it's divine simplicity idea. So that, um, and you see that a lot, kind of the eternal subordination within the Baptist church today, I think. But Matthew Barrett has a lot to say this on this. I've done three or four lessons on this. I might even do more in the future because um, that topic's fun. <laughs> Christology and, and trin- Trinitarian theology, and uh, it's, it's fun. Um, but yeah... Uh, I want to kind of skip through that, but divine simplicity is kind of part of that, that that God is not made up of parts and that the Son never lost any divinity during his incarnation, fully God, fully man. You know, we talked about that. And no one's denying that in uh, as far as fully God, fully man in the Baptist church today, but that eternal, um, you know, we see Baptists writings such as John Gill in his writings, he refers back to the Nicene Creed and argues for the doctrine of eternal generation of the Son, uh, that he is eternally begotten. And we've talked about that in the past, how some, you know, I think John MacArthur didn't affirm that at first, and then he, he went back and affirmed it later because he was convinced of it. But that's the language of the early church creeds. <coughs> he will, but John Gill will quote early church fathers such as Gregory of Nyssa, Nyssa to explain the doctrine of eternal generation and even eternal spiration of the sun. In Matthew Barrett's book, he quotes a lot of John Gill. It's funny. But a lot of Gill's writings was towards the general Baptists who were trying to step away from the creeds and doctrines of the Orthodox early church. So you start to see Trinitarian heresies within the general Baptists uh, early on, too. Uh, uh, A a thing called the Salter Hall controversy. Salter 
salt and then e or er salter hall if you want to look that up and look more into that some historians have interpreted the controversy as a, as an early sign of the theological demise of the english general baptists who were questioning the nicene creed and that's specifically on the doctrine of the trinity but but Southern Baptists are not General Baptists. Many Baptists think of John Smith as one of the first Baptists, but he was a General Baptist. Southern Baptists came out of the of the uh, Trinial Convention. Okay, so I don't know if I'm exactly saying that right, but it's T R I E N N I A L Trinial Convention, which was composed entirely of particular Baptists. I've read that it would have been hard to find a leader uh, during that Southern Baptist when it first was established, and especially the Trinial Convention. It would have been hard to find a leader there that was not Calvinistic. Um, they were they called themselves Trinial because they they met every three years. Um, it was the first national Baptist denomination in the United States. In the United States officially named the General Missionary Convention of the Baptist denomination in the United States of America for foreign missions. It was formed in 1814 to advance missionary work, and the headquarters were in Philadelphia. In the in the dispute of slavery. Over slavery and missions policy, Baptist churches in the South separated from the Trinial Convention and established the Southern Baptist Convention in 1845. And uh, one doctrine uh, present to, uh, in present-day Southern Baptists rightly cherish, one doctrine we do as Southern Baptists rightly cherish, is perseverance of the saints, sometimes termed once saved, always saved. Okay, so general Baptists in the 17th century England were more or less influenced by the Anabaptist movement and did not affirm this doctrine. Um, um, few, if any, Southern Baptists will affirm that a genuine Christian can lose their salvation. Final apostasy is the doctrinal heritage of the general Armenian or free will Baptists, not Southern Baptists. Okay, so that, that kind of shows a hint at our Calvinistic roots even today. There's not many Southern Baptists who are say you can lose your salvation. Um, and the question is, are all da- are all Baptists dispensational? Uh, no, that that was a, a doctrine that came in later from the Baptist movement, but it does have a huge influence on Southern Baptists. Uh, I think you know in the 20th century, early on, with the Schofield Reference Bible, as well as other denominations. But um, so the early Baptists were were Calvinist, and so they were Covenantalists. Whereas even today, you see um, dispensationals who are Calvinists, such as John MacArthur, but Early on, that covenant theology, such as Nehemiah Cox, uh, one of the early great particular Baptists, that was the main idea there. Um, let's see. There's no need for divi- There's not really any mention in these creeds on eschatology matters, eschatological matters, as far as premillennial, you know, millennial stuff. As long as you believe, you know, the Lord's coming back and physically, literally, um, that's kind of the only thing that they mention there. So, you know, don't separate over millennialism. You've got, I've got, I know great Baptists who are postmillennial, amillennial, and even uh, premillennial, uh, rather your historic premill or dispensational premill. Um, so, baptism. I want to look at a couple of the sacraments, and then we'll end it. <clears throat> the historical proper mode and meaning of baptism was, you know, the mode was immersion. Immersion. Baptist Baptism signified the believer's death, burial, and resurrection with Christ, and baptism helps to give the believer assurance that just as he is raised up from the waters of baptism, so certainly shall the bodies of the saints be raised by the power of Christ and the day of resurrection. <clears throat> Gavin Ortland, he's coming to Nashville, by the way. I'm, I'm super excited about that. Um, as far as he's just moving to Nashville, the Nashville area. One of my favorite YouTubers and and uh, apologist. Um, and uh, I guess you could call it a polemicist as well. He argues for the faith, but he does it in such an ironic way. Gavin Ortland, historical Baptist, considered baptism as a sacrament and a means of grace. Historically, Baptist considered baptism as a sacrament and a means of grace. A lot of times you'll see the language of ordinance. Um, in, the, in the confessions, but <clears throat> God is bestowing grace not only on the one getting baptized, but also uh, all of those observing the baptism. So it, it's not just a symbol in the early historical language. It's a visible picture of the gospel, right? You know, the death, burial, and resurrection. It's showing, it's presenting the gospel. It's a sign and seal. They don't just show something, but they are promising something. Presenting the gospel and promising resurrection, uh, circumcision is, is uniquely the precursor to baptism. Both are signs of the covenant. 
Faith is the means by which the sacrament is worthily received. Baptism does no good apart from faith. It is not a sign of your faith. Rather, it is the sign of the gospel. Okay? It's kind of your outward expression, but it's ultimately pointing towards the gospel. What's being pictured is the washing away of sin and then your union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Immersion in the water, right? I mean, it makes more sense to me. Obviously, I've been raised credo-baptist and in the Baptist faith, but... But we do not believe that baptism is regenerative, okay? As we said, I, as far as uh, <clears throat> our conf confession, or even regeneration precedes faith, and that you are you are saved at your faith, and then the <clears throat> the baptism is a sign and seal, kind of showing what you already had. But here's a metaphor: when you go up to receive your diploma when you graduate college, okay, the visible the visible expression. <clears throat> of your graduation but you're technically already graduated when you complete the degree requirements right so the same too i think that's a perfect a perfect metaphor <clears throat> all right let's look at the lord's supper the early church talked of the eucharist as having real presence all the way i mean you look at back at ignatius and justin martyr i've talked about this with my catholic friend and <clears throat> and he's like they were talking about real presence too i was like well I don't think they were thinking of the transubstantiation, the doctrine of the Catholic Church uh, today. You know that you don't really see that arise until the ninth century, and even in the ninth century, they're arguing about it, which way's right, and they decided one, but they didn't do any anathemas at that time. I don't think they did an anathema on anyone who doesn't agree with transubstantiation until like the twelfth century or something. So even then, they didn't really come to a conclusion. <clears throat> you got the Lutherans who believe in consubstantiation. Calvin, who believes in real presence, and even the Westminster, and I think I'm going to get to that, actually, so I'll wait on that. But the early church do talk about the Eucharist as having real presence. So the argument is, what is that? <clears throat> what is that real presence? I think we are receiving by mouth the benefits of his sacrifice. Plenty of Protestants and historically Baptists all believe in real presence. The Second London Baptist Confession stipulates that the worthy partakers of the Lord's Supper inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporately, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. The Baptists omitted in, with, or under the bread and wine, yet as really, and that's that's they omitted that from the Westminster Confession. So you can kind of see a difference there. They didn't put that part, but everything else is word for word. Um, but they didn't put in with or under the bread and wine, yet as really. They, they took that out. Some suggest to reject the Lutheran explanation of how Christ is present in the Lord's Supper. Luther's view was that Christ's body and blood are present in, with, and under the bread and wine. But they all did agree and affirm as believers partake of the bread and wine. Christ is spiritually present to them and nourishing them. We are being spiritually fed by it, spiritually nourished, a means of grace, a way of remembering Christ and his sacrifice. So it is a memorial, but it's also more than that. And it leads us to repentance because we should not take the Lord's Supper unworthily, right? Um, most 17th and 18th century Baptists roughly follow John Calvin's spiritual presence view uh, in which we uh, feast upon Christ and his benefits by faith through the Lord's Supper. It was not a mere memorial. It was a, a rich means of grace and unique occasion for communion with Christ. Hercules Collins, who was an English Baptist early on, he claimed that in the Lord's Supper, believers are made verily partakers of his body and blood, through the working of the Holy Ghost. From Collins' perspective, although Christ's body is in heaven, believers have communion with the risen Christ in the supper through the Spirit. Um, even Charles Spurgeon, there's this book called Amidst Us, Our Beloved Stands. Um, and uh, so at the time... Um, it wasn't necessarily as, as big during Charles Spurgeon time, during his, his time. It wasn't necessarily the kind of the, the big view. But I'm going to read his, his uh, kind of his, um, I guess you, a hymn, I guess you could call it, yeah. <clears throat> and it's called Jesus' Presence Delightful. Amidst us our beloved stands and bids us view his pierced hands. Points to his wounded feet inside, blessed emblems of the crucified. What food luxurious loads and moored when at his table sits the Lord? The wine how rich, the bread how sweet, when Jesus dines the guests to meet. 
If now with eyes defiled and dim we see the signs, but see not him, O oh, may his love and scales displace, and bid us see him face to face. Our, fr our former transports we recount, when with him in the holy mount, these cause our souls to thirst anew, his married but lovely face to view. Though glorious bridegroom of our hearts, they, thy present smile a heaven in parts. Oh, lift the veil, if veil there be, let every saint thy beauty see. So this hymn's emphasis on the spiritual presence of Christ is the table is quite remarkable, at the table is quite remarkable for the late 19th century Baptist author. The vast, and as I was saying, the vast majority of Baptist leaders at this time held that the supper was a time of remembrance and nothing more. But Spurgeon had long nourished his heart and mind on 17th century Puritan and 18th century Baptist authors and where the, the Lord's table was above all a place where God's people had sweet fellowship with their Savior, who was spiritually present with them. So, you know, no one's going to say Spurgeon's a heretic, right? So read from him. Make sure that, uh, but just kind of seeing where he stood on that matter, you know, during a time where it wasn't as known. Um, <clears throat> and this is a book by Michael Haken, kind of looking back at Baptist sacraments, uh, kind of recovery. Um, And I'm at 55 minutes, so I, I think I might actually... Well, no, I'm almost done. So I'm going to do... I'm going to read from from this book a little, just to wrap it up. <clears throat> okay, so this in this book it talks about kind of six theses that that kind of explain, and, and one of them here is the, the Lord's Supper and baptisms are essential. <clears throat> okay. Baptism and the Lord's Supper belong to the very essence of the church. Both baptism and the Lord's Supper are grounded in explicit commands of Jesus Christ. Hence, Baptists have come to term the, them ordinances. They never... They can never be considered as optional in the Christian life. They are essential to discipleship and lie at the very essence of the local church. Um, I'm going to read the first four of these six theses. Baptism and the Lord's Supper belong to the very essence of the church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are means of grace in the hands of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is the public sign of the new covenant which had been sealed to the believer's heart by the Holy Spirit in this uniquely public way, the Christian declares that he has embraced Christ's saving work and that he is Christ's and Christ is his for all eternity. The Lord's Supper uh, recommits Christians to the Lordship of Christ and to one another. So this is a big one. The Lord's Supper recommits Christians to the Lordship of Christ and to one another and in fellowship with their brothers and sisters, they receive assurance that he has cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I want to look at the altar call. So we kind of have a, a thing called the altar call today. So this is in this book he writes, The altar call that became common in many Baptist churches during the 20th century has undermined a rich understanding of baptism and the Lord's Supper in Baptist communities. He says, the fading of the importance of the Lord's Supper in baptism life in Baptist life during the 20th century is due not only to the Zwinglian emphasis on the absent Jesus at the table. So you see Zwingli and Luther kind of debate this um, as far as if there's real presence or if there is no presence. And that was kind of Zwingli. It was a mere memorial. That's kind of where we are at today, I think, <clears throat> more on the Zwing Zwinglian side. But... So this is more of Zwinglian emphasis on the absent Jesus at the table, but also the employment of the altar call as a place of recommitment to Christ. The richness of baptism in early Baptist thought has also been diminished by making the altar call an event where the believer publicly decides for Christ. Of course, Baptists in the 17th and 18th centuries invited unbelievers to believe in Christ, but they did not utilize the altar call to do so. The free offer of the gospel as it was called, was normative for 17th century Baptists. It was challenged by high Calvinism in the 18th century, uh, though this challenge was refuted by, an, uh, by Andrew Fuller, and that was the hyper, he challenged the hyper-Calvinism, and like-minded brothers and sisters in the late 18th century. For these men and women, baptism was the place where Christians publicly made the good confession. 
and the Lord's Supper, the place where that confession was renewed on a regular basis. So that was kind of where you could renew yourself. I mean, as we said, it leads you to, to, to repentance as well, because you can't take of the supper unworthily. Um, so that's just kind of kind of where we've kind of gotten away from it. And, and as he said, and when you listen to people, a lot of them talk about people who view the Lord's Supper higher with a real presence, spiritual presence, and not just a memorial. They tend to have the Lord's Supper more often. And obviously with Lutherans, Presbyterians, and uh, even the, the, the Catholics, they, they do it every time. I think Presbyterians do. Right? I know Lutherans do have the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, or whatever they call it, uh, every time. But but uh, but many Baptists do today, mostly the Calvinistic Baptists, uh, or more of the, that allude to the 1689 that have that confession as part of their confession of their, their church. Um, they will usually have the Lord's Supper more often, and you tend to see that. Not, not always the case. Um but with that higher view of that. But yeah, that's just a little bit of recovery I thought was interesting. Um, but to show our history and to show where we're at today, more of where we're at today kind of towards the end of me and Michael's conversation kind of shows you where we're at today and how that 2000 confession, to the two individuals that kind of, leaders that kind of put it together, one was a five-point Calvinist, the other one was not a Calvinist. And you kind of see that similar language and that, you you, you know, we're kind of free to go to either side. Atonement's not really even mentioned in that one because that is a debated area but but yeah that's just kind of to show you we do have calvinistic roots you can't get away from that as southern baptists and um and to just kind of take those points seriously let's look at both sides and i'd like to do that in the future just kind of look at the armenian side as well as the calvinistic side and and uh more and we'll talk a little bit about flowers i guess and some traditionalism and and look at the the confession as well um and talk through that uh but anyway, yeah, that's all I got, guys. I hope I hope you got something out of that. It was fun. I enjoy the history, and I think we, it's important for us to know our history. And I think recovery is important. I think we need to look at kind of look back at the history and how they saw things, and and you know, and and uh, keep them in mind, and and uh, and as well as keep the early church in mind, and and where we our our continuity with that. We need to understand that as well. But anyway, thanks for listening, guys, and we will see you next time. Bye.